As we continue in this sermon series on the Psalms, uh, before us this evening is Psalm 82. And perhaps the place to start is to ask, what type of psalm is Psalm 82? Remember that the Psalms can generally be identified by their type. If we wanted to, or if if any one of us wanted to on our own, we could uh, get a very technical, or could get to a very technical level of classifying the Psalms by looking at the more academic or scholarly uh, studies of the Psalms. But short of that, what we can do when we are reading a particular psalm is to ask uh, simply, what is happening in this psalm? Or, or what are we being led by the psalm writer to do as we read the psalm that he has written? Is it mainly a prayer, specifically a, a petition being offered to God? A good example of a prayer psalm would be Psalm 25, which begins, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Or is it a psalm of instruction and and meditation? A good example would be Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Or is it a psalm of faith, we might uh, say, uh, like Psalm 23, which begins with the confession of faith, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or Psalm 46, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. It doesn't have to be complicated, and it can be uh, helpful to us if we simply stop and ask, what is happening Uh, And what am I doing as I read, sing, or even pray this psalm to God? So that being said, what kind of psalm is Psalm 82? And I would venture to answer that Psalm 82 is a psalm of instruction and meditation. It teaches us something important about who God is. And it calls upon us to meditate upon a certain aspect of God's being and character. In this way, it it also, or it has similarities to Psalm 46. Both Psalms beginning with a statement about God. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and our strength. And Psalm 82 begins, God has taken his place in the divine council. Even more, Psalm 46 contains words that are attributed uh, directly to God. Without it saying, God said this, uh, Be still and know that I am God, says Psalm 46. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And yet it doesn't say, and God said, or said God at the end. Here is one of those times when we might be singing a, a psalm and pull up short thinking, how can I sing these words, be still and know that I am God? But we are singing not what we say about ourselves, but what God says about himself, words that he speaks into this tumultuous world in which we live. And in a similar way, Psalm 82 records words spoken by God. In fact, except for the first and last verse, of Psalm 82, the entire psalm is composed of words spoken by God. 
even the judgment that he speaks to the rulers of his people, even more to the rulers of the whole world. Therefore, as a psalm written to instruct us and calling us to meditate upon it, let's do that in the balance of our time. And let the first point be this, uh, the judge of judges. You have heard, no doubt, that God is Lord of lords and King of kings. But here we are taught that God is judge of judges. However, it's really not saying something further to say that God is judge of judges, because judging is something that both a lord and a king do. In our American setting, we may not be as tuned in to this reality, because the founders of our country took great pains in setting up our system of government to separate out the various aspects of a king's authority. The legislature makes the law, The executive branch enforces the law, and the judicial branch judges the law and those who break it, all with checks and balances upon the authority and activity of each branch of government. But under a monarchy, which is ruled by a king, the king makes the law, and the king enforces the law, and the king judges those who break the law. So to say that God is king of kings is really to say already that he is judge of judges. But here is the specific picture of God acting as judge of judges. Psalm 82 verse 1 says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. If all it said was God has taken his place in the divine council, We might be left to think that God is just one among the others. Uh, He only has a seat at the table, no higher or lower than the other gods. But it says more, God has taken his place in the divine council. and, And what is that place? In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. In other words, he judges the judges. He rules over the other rulers. But we might ask, why are there other rulers? If God is king, why is there even what verse 1 refers to as the divine council? The reason is that God rules even as earthly rulers rule. He rules by way of vice regency, which is to say he rules by setting in place lower rulers who serve him, by bearing his authority and carrying out his sovereign will. Or at least they're supposed to, and there's the problem here. As far as earthly kings go, perhaps the best example of this is uh, both Herod and Pilate in the story of Jesus' birth and life and death. Both Herod and Pilate are rulers, even powerful rulers. Herod is even called King Herod. But they are vice regents. They rule under the rule of Caesar. In the same way, God is king of kings. He is Lord of lords, so that he is judge of all judges on earth. The Apostle Paul even teaches in Romans 13, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. 
and those that exist have been instituted by God. And Paul goes on to write that an earthly ruler is God's servant for your good, so that one must be in subjection. It certainly sets up a challenge for us, especially as our own government becomes more and more corrupt, so that it is generally understood and believed that there are legitimate times and places for what is called civil disobedience. In fact, our own nation began by way of a grand-scale civil disobedience. And many of those who remained loyal to the British in the American Revolution did so because, amid other passages of Scripture, Romans 13 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. But uh, let's leave uh, further discussion of the American Revolution and generally of civil disobedience for after church. The point here is to see that God is the judge of judges. And not because He has overcome them, so to rule over them, but because God Himself has appointed them, so to rule over them. But because God Himself has appointed them, setting them in their respective places of authority, again, Paul used the word instituted, that there is no authority except from God, so that those that exist have been instituted by God. But who specifically are these judges whom God is judging in, in Psalm 82? In other words, what is the makeup of the divine council? The commentators that I read seem to see it more as the rulers of God's people, the, the rulers of Israel. But there is also to be found in Psalm 82 a, a worldwide view. As God judges these rulers and rebukes them for their unjust judging, he refers in verse 5 to the foundations of the earth being shaken. In verse 7, it refers to a prince, which is, which is not a, a very common word used to refer to rulers in Israel. And verse 8 finishes with, uh, with an explicit worldwide view. Arise, O God, it says, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. So the point is that God is judging the judges of all the earth. And finally, under this first point, why are the rulers called gods? As Scripture interprets Scripture, we, we clearly are not being taught that any earthly ruler, whether in Israel or anywhere in the world, is actually divine. The point, it would seem, is to affirm the true and legitimate place, of, uh, place and authority of earthly rulers. Perhaps the Apostle Paul even had this psalm in mind when he wrote his instruction in Romans 13. While earthly rulers are certainly vice-regents under God, yet theirs is truly a divine authority because they have been instituted by God, the one who is divine. And then as God judges the judges, here is the judgment. First, a gracious judgment. 
Verse 2 reads, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. It's a gracious judgment because God is graciously issuing a judgment on behalf of the weak and the fatherless, the afflicted, and the destitute, the weak, and the needy. But first, a charge is leveled. It's not just an allegation. It's a, it's a divine charge of sin issued by God. It comes in the form of a question, but it's a, a charge nonetheless. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? And why is the question issued beginning with the words, how long? It could say, why do you judge unjustly? But that's not really the question, is it? The reason for injustice and unjust rulings and dealings is sin. So the question gets asked, how long? Because it indicates how long this has already been going on. If we understand that God is speaking to all the rulers of the earth, we can answer that Injustice has been found in the world from the very beginning, from the fall of mankind into sin. And the underlying sin of of unjust ruling is, is really selfishness. Unjust judgments are made for the benefit of the one making the judgment, for the sake of a bribe, perhaps, or by way of a, a favor done for a friend. Um, by way of uh, the I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine approach to life in this world. Or unjust judgments are made for the cold and empty reason of abject hatred. Nothing to be gained, simply done out of hatred toward another person for whatever reason or for no reason at all. So is this first part of God's judgment really a gracious judgment? It can be put this way because while it is certainly a judgment against the unjust rulers, it is judgment for the weak and the fatherless, the afflicted and the destitute, the weak and the needy. God is a just God who upholds justice for those who suffer the unjust rule of the judges of this world. He has concern for those uh, who are in need. And we see this about God all the way through Scripture. We see Adam and Eve naked in the garden, and God clothes them. We see in the law of God rules and regulations regarding slaves and servants that they be treated justly. In fact, much of God's law is dedicated to calling upon Israel to live and act justly. Even as even as Micah 6 verse 8 says, you've You've heard the verse before. Uh, he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. But surely we see God's heart for justice most clearly in our Lord Jesus. He was the one who walked among the common people. He was the one who saw the people as sheep, without a shepherd having compassion upon them. 
He was the one who debunked the Pharisees' self-righteousness and legalism by being willing to heal the people on the Sabbath day. And he is the one who now fills us by his Spirit that we should do likewise. If anyone doubts that they are filled with the Spirit of Christ, then that person must understand that they would not even be a Christian if the Spirit of Christ were not in them, filling them even. Think of your own spirit, which is to say the the physical life that is in you. Uh, Is there any part of your body that is not alive by the Spirit that is in you? And so it is with the new birth that Christ accomplished for us. He accomplished new life for us by His birth, life, suffering, and death, by His resurrection and ascension on high. And that new life has been applied to the believer so that he or she is a believer. The Holy Spirit, who is the very Spirit of Christ, is that application so much that the believer need not doubt that he or she is filled with the Spirit. This is why the Apostle Paul wrote in in Galatians 5.25, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. If we are alive unto saving faith by the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit poured out by Christ by His finished saving work, then don't just sit there. Don't be the dog who returns to his vomit. Don't be the freed man who bangs on the prison door to be let back in. Instead, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And here is where Jesus does become our example. He is not just an example, as as if we could on our own do as He did and live as He lived. But as the Spirit has filled us, let us know that the Spirit works by the Word. It was that way as God created the world in the beginning. It was that way in our new birth and conversion. And it's the same way in our Christian living. The Spirit sets our eyes on Christ in the Word to see what He does and and how He lives, uh, that we might strive to do and to live the same, that we might fight and win against the power of sin. And so the question gets asked, how long? Because it is a call for repentance. However long the rulers of this world have judged unjustly, showing partiality to the wicked, it must stop. And make no mistake, it will stop. The question is when. The injustice of this world must stop, and it will stop, whether by way of the sinner's repentance or by way of the sinner's death, or by way of the return of Christ, at which time He will remove all injustice, He will banish all sin, and He will deliver us once and for all from this body of death. Therefore, let us be those who are waiting for Him in repentance and faith and hope. If anyone would say, but uh, but I'm not a ruler, 
so this doesn't apply to me. Well, then only remember that we are all rulers. If we think we have no authority and no possessions to rule over, let us remember that we have our lives and our bodies as our possession and as our realm of rulership. We may not be rich. We, we may not have a, a great wealth to give large, impressive sums of money to those in need. But we have what we have and whatever we have. We are called to use it justly. Again, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Or as God says in Psalm 82, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And finally, a dire judgment. And this judgment, too, begins with a charge against those who rule unjustly. Verse 5 says, They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. In other words, they are ignorant and foolish. And it's a willful ignorance and foolishness, so that they walk about in darkness. The Apostle John puts it this way in John 3, verse 19, that light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So again, first the charge and then the judgment, starting in Psalm 82, verse 6, I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Here God is reminding them that He is the one who has put them in charge. He is the one who has given them honor and authority. Nevertheless, God continues, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Death is finally the great equalizer. While in life some have more and some have less, and all according to God's rule over the people, yet in the end all die. Psalm 39 puts it this way, Fret not yourself because of evildoers, be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. And so the final verse serves as the conclusion because it really is the conclusion and the application. Certainly we can draw lessons from God's confrontation of all unjust rulers. And if we find ourselves under conviction for any unjust use of the possessions that God has given to us, let us repent. Certainly we can hear the call of God for ourselves to rescue the weak and the needy, to deliver them from the hand of the wicked. But in the end, this must be our prayer. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. In the end, God's judgment will not just be upon his people, not just upon his church, but upon the whole earth. And why should we want his judgment to come? 
Why call upon God to arise and judge the earth? Because His judgment has already come for His people's sins. His judgment has fallen upon Christ in our place on the cross, so that His judgment upon the world in the end will bring about an earth that is free of all injustice. Let us work for a bit of heaven now as we practice justice amid an unjust world. And let us pray that 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 last great day will come soon as Christ returns in glory to inherit the nations and to rule in righteousness forever. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, you are King of kings, Lord of lords, and judge of judges. You do hold accountable and even rebuke the rulers of this earth who judge unjustly. And we feel that judgment as well, so far as we are at times guilty of injustice in our dealings, in, our, in, our, in the way we rule what we have, what you have given us to rule. So forgive our sins, O Lord. Give us a heart that is shaped by your Spirit, that we would, uh, um, that we would live justly, but also long for that great day when Christ will return and all injustice will be removed from this world. And he, in justice, in equity, will rule this world forever and ever. And we with him. And this we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.